Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Did the president encourage violence? Yes. No doubt that he did. Final question. Did the president act willfully in his actions that encouraged violence? Well, let's look at the facts. He stood before an armed, angry crowd known to be ready for violence at his provocation. And what did he do? He provoked them. He aimed them here, told them to fight like hell. And that's exactly what they did. And his conduct throughout the rest of that terrible day really only confirms that he acted willfully, that he incited the crowd and then engaged in a dereliction of duty while he continued inflaming the violence. And again, we don't have to guess what he thought because he told us Remember the video he released at 4.17 p.m.? Lead manager Raskin showed that to you yesterday. The one where he said, quote, we had an election that was stolen from us. Remember the tweet that he put out just a couple hours later, 6.01 p.m. on January 6th. You've seen it many times. You can see it on the slide. That these are the things that happen when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away. That is what he was focused on. Spreading the big lie and praising the mob that attacked us and our government. You heard Manager Cicilline describe reports. The president was delighted, enthusiastic confused that others didn't share his excitement as he watched the attack unfold on TV. He cared more about pressing his efforts to overturn the election than he did about saving lives, our lives. Look at what President Trump did that day after the rally. It's important. He did virtually nothing. We've seen, lead man, uh, manager Castro mentioned this, that when President Trump wants to stop something, he does so simply, easily, quickly. But aside from four tweets and a short clip during the over five hour long attack, he did nothing. On January 6th, he didn't condemn the attack, he didn't condemn the attackers, didn't say that he would send help to defend us or defend law enforcement. 
He didn't react to the violence with shock or horror or dismay as we did. He didn't immediately rush to Twitter and demand in the clearest possible terms that the mob disperse, that they stop it, that they retreat. Instead, he issued messages in the afternoon that sided with them. The insurrectionists who had left police officers battered and bloodied. He reacted exactly the way someone would react if they were delighted and exactly unlike how a person would react if they were angry at how their followers were acting. Again, ask yourself how many lives would have been saved, how much pain and trauma would have been avoided if he had reacted the way that a president of the United States is supposed to act. There are two parts of President Trump's failure here, his dereliction of duty, that I just have to emphasize for a moment. First is what he did to Vice President Mike Pence, the Vice President of the United States of America. His own Vice President was in this building with an armed mob shouting, hang him. The same armed mob that set up gallows outside. You saw those pictures. And what did President Trump do? He attacked him more. He singled him out by name. It, it's honestly hard to fathom. Second, our law enforcement. The brave officers who were sacrificing their lives to defend us, who could not evacuate or seek cover because they were protecting us. I'm, I'm not going to go through again what my fellow manager showed you yesterday, but let me just say this. Those officers serve us faithfully and dutifully, and they follow their oaths. They deserved a president who upholds his, who would not risk their lives and safety to retain power. A president who would preserve, protect, and defend them. But that's not what he did. When they, the police, still barricaded and being attacked with poles, he said in his video to the people attacking them, we love you. You're very special. What more could we possibly need to know about President Trump's state of mind? Senators, the evidence is clear. We showed you statements, videos, affidavits that prove President Trump incited an insurrection, an insurrection that he alone had the power to stop. And the fact that he didn't stop it, the fact that he incited a lawless attack and abdicated his duty to defend us from it, the fact that he actually further inflamed the mob, further inflamed that mob, attacking his vice president while assassins were pursuing him, 
in this capital more than requires conviction and disqualification. We humbly, humbly ask you to convict President Trump for the crime for which he is overwhelmingly guilty of. Because if you don't, if we pretend this didn't happen, or worse, if we let it go unanswered, who's to say it won't happen again? Mr. President, members of the Senate, first of all, thank you for your close attention and seriousness of purpose that you've demonstrated over the last few days. Thank you also for your courtesy to the House managers as we've come over here, strangers in a strange land, uh, to make our case before this distinguished and august body. Uh, we are about to close, and I am proud that our managers have been so disciplined and so focused, I think we are closing uh, somewhere between five and six hours under the time that you have allotted to us. Uh, but we think we have been able to tell you everything we need to say. We will obviously have the opportunity to address your questions and then to do, uh, to do a, a final closing when we get there. I just wanted to leave you with a few thoughts. Um, and again, I'm not going to re-traumatize you by going through the evidence once again, I just wanted to leave you with a few uh, thoughts to consider as you enter upon uh, this very high and difficult duty that you have to render impartial justice in this case, as you have all sworn to do. And I wanted to start simply by saying that in the history of humanity, democracy is an extremely rare and fragile and precarious and transitory thing. Abraham Lincoln knew that when he spoke from the battlefield and vowed that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. But he was speaking not long after the republic was created, and he was trying to prove that point, that we would not allow it to perish from the earth. For most of history, the norm has been dictators, autocrats, bullies, despots, tyrants, cowards who take over our governments for most of the history of the world. And that's why America is such a miracle. We were founded on the extraordinary principles of the inalienable rights of the people and the consent of the governed. <clears throat> and the fundamental equality of all of us. You know, when Lincoln said, government of the people, by the people, and for the people, and he hearkened back to the Declaration of Independence when he said four score seven years ago, um, he knew that that wasn't how we started. We started imperfectly. We started as a slave republic. Lincoln knew that. But he was struggling to make the country better and however flawed the founders were as men in their times, they inscribed in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution all the beautiful principles that we needed to open America up to successive waves of political struggle and constitutional change 
and transformation in the country. So we really would become something much more like Lincoln's beautiful vision of government of the people, by the people, and for the people. The world's greatest multiracial, multireligious, multiethnic constitutional democracy, the envy of the world. As Tom Paine said, an asylum for humanity where people would come. Think about the preamble. Those first three words, pregnant with such meaning. We the people. And then all of the purposes of our government put into that one action-packed sentence. We the people, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and preserve to ourselves and our posterity the blessings of liberty. And then, right after that first sentence, the mission statement for America and the Constitution, what happens? Article 1. The Congress is created. All legislative powers herein are reserved to the Congress of the United States. You see what just happened? The sovereign power of the people to launch the country and create the Constitution flowed right into Congress. And then you get in Article 1, Section 8, comprehensive, vast powers that all of you know so well. The power to regulate commerce domestically, internationally. The power to declare war. The power to raise budgets and taxes and to spend money. The power to govern the seat of government and on and on and on. And then even in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 18, and all other powers necessary and proper to the execution of the foregoing powers. That's all of us. And then you get to Article 2, the president. Four short paragraphs. And the fourth paragraph is all about what? Impeachment. How you get rid of a president who commits high crimes and misdemeanors. But what's the core job of the president? To take care that the laws are faithfully executed. And our framers were so fearful of presidents becoming tyrants and wanting to become kings and despots that they put the oath of office right into the Constitution. They inscribed it into the Constitution to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. We've got the power to impeach the president. The president doesn't have the power to, the power to impeach us. Think about that. The popular branch of government has the power to impeach the president. The president does not have the power to impeach us. And as I said before, all of us who aspire and attain to public office are nothing but the servants of the people. And the way the framers would have it is the moment that we no longer acted as servants of the people, but as masters of the people, as violators of the people's rights, that was the time to impeach, remove, convict, disqualify, start all over again. Because the interests of the people are so much greater than the interests of one person, any one person, even the greatest person in the country. The interests of the people are what count. Now, when we sit down and we close, our distinguished counterparts, the defense counsel, who have waited very patiently, and thank you, will stand up and seek to defend the president's conduct 
on the facts, which I think they will, it has already been decided by the Senate on Tuesday that the Senate has constitutional jurisdiction over this impeachment case brought to you by the United States House of Representatives. So we've put that jurisdictional constitutional issue to bed. It is over. It's already been voted on. This is a trial on the facts of what happened. An incitement, as we said, is a fact-intensive investigation and judgment that each of you will have to make. We've made our very best effort to set forth every single relevant fact that we know in the most objective and honest light. We trust and we hope that the defense will understand the constitutional gravity and solemnity of this trial by focusing like a laser beam on the facts and not return to the constitutional argument that's already been decided by the Senate. Just as a defense lawyer who loses a motion to dismiss on a constitutional basis in a criminal case must let that go and then focus on the facts which are being presented by the prosecutors in detail, they must let this constitutional jurisdictional argument go. Not just because it's frivolous and wrong, as nearly every expert scholar in America opined, but because it's not relevant to the jury's consideration of the facts of the case. So our friends must work to answer all of the overwhelming, detailed, specific, factual, and documentary evidence we have introduced of the president's clear and overwhelming guilt in inciting, in inciting violent insurrection against the union. Now, Donald Trump last week turned down our invitation to come testify about his actions, and therefore we've not been able to ask him any questions directly as of this point. Therefore, during the course of their 16-hour allotted presentation, we would pose these preliminary questions to his lawyers, which I think are on everyone's minds right now, in which we would have asked Mr. Trump himself if he had chosen to come and testify about his actions and inactions when we invited him last week. One, why did President Trump not tell his supporters to stop the attack on the Capitol as soon as he learned of it? Why did President Trump do nothing to stop the attack for at least two hours after the attack began? As our constitutional commander-in-chief, why did he do nothing to send help to our overwhelmed and besieged law enforcement officers for at least two hours on January 16th after the attack began? On January 6th, why did President Trump not at any point that day condemn the violent insurrection and the insurrectionists? And I'll add a legal question that I hope um, his distinguished counsel will address. If a president did invite a violent insurrection against our government, as of course we allege and think we've proven in this case, but just in general, if a president incited a violent insurrection against our government, would that be a high crime and misdemeanor? Can we all agree at least on that? Senators, um, I've talked a lot about common sense in this trial because I think I believe that's all you need to arrive at the right answer here. You know, when Tom Paine wrote Common Sense, the pamphlet that launched the American Revolution, 
He said that common sense really meant two different things. One, common sense is the understanding that we all have without advanced learning and education. Common sense is the sense accessible to everybody. But common sense is also the sense that we all have in common as a community. Senators, America, we need to exercise our common sense about what happened. Let's not get caught up in a lot of outlandish lawyers' theories here. Exercise your common sense about what just took place in our country. Tom Paine wasn't an American, as you know, but he came over to help us in our great revolutionary struggle against the kings and queens and the tyrants. And in 1776, in the crisis, he wrote these beautiful words. It was a very tough time for the country. People didn't know which way things were going to go. Were we going to win? Against all hope? Because for most of the rest of human history, it had been the kings and the queens and the tyrants and the nobles lording it over the common people. Could political self-government work in America was the question. And Paine wrote this pamphlet called The Crisis. And in it, he said these beautiful words. And with your permission, I'm going to update the language a little bit, pursuant to a suggestion of Speaker Pelosi, uh, so as not to offend modern sensibilities. Okay. But he said, these are the times that try men and women's souls. These are the times that try men and women's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will shrink at this moment from the service of their cause and their country. But everyone who stands with us now will win the love and the favor and the affection of every man and every woman for all time. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered, but we have this saving consolation. The more difficult the struggle, the more glorious in the end will be our victory. Good luck in your deliberations. Thank you. Thank you. Now I have two, um, we're going to do the adjournment resolution in a moment. I have two other things that we have to do. They're quick. First, Mr. President, I ask unanimous consent that it be in order uh, to make several unanimous consent requests as if in legislative session. The objection is ordered. I ask unanimous consent that on Friday, February 12th, from 10.30 to 11.30 a.m., that notwithstanding adjournment, the Senate be able to receive House messages and executive matters. Committees be authorized to report legislative and executive matters, and senators be allowed to submit statements for the record, introduce bills and resolutions, and make co-sponsor requests, and where applicable, the Secretary of the Senate, on behalf of the presiding officer, be permitted to re- refer such matters. Uh, objections <clears throat> And a second request, poignantly appropriate at this moment. I ask unanimous consent that pursuant to the order of the Senate of January 24th, 1901, the traditional reading of Washington's farewell address take place on Monday, February 22nd, following the pr- pl- prayer and pledge Further, that Senator Portman be recognized to deliver the address. Is there objection? Not hearing objection. Um, it's ordered. <laughs>
And finally, Mr. President, I ask unanimous consent the trial adjourn until 12 noon tomorrow, Friday, February 12th, and this also constitute the adjournment of the Senate. Hearing an objection, without objection, it's ordered. Senate's adjourned. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper in Washington. The House impeachment managers have just concluded their opening arguments in their case against former President Donald Trump. Over the last two days, Democrats using Mr. Trump's own words and tweets and actions, social media posts from insurrectionists, and newly revealed surveillance video, all to build the case that then-President Trump incited the insurrection on January 6th. Senators, who are something like a jury in this case, will hear next from Trump's legal team. That's tomorrow, as they attempt to defend his actions surrounding the U.S. Capitol attack. Joining me here in studio, Dana Bash and Abby Phillip. And let me just start with you, Abby. It seems to me they had the task of presenting to the jury these arguments. Donald Trump lied over and over about the election result. The rally took place January 6th because of him, because it was the last chance for him to, in his view, overturn the election. He incited the mob rushing to the Capitol, knowing that there were violent people in the crowd and that it likely would lead to violence. Uh, And then once it happened, he was indifferent, if not uh, rudely ignoring the requests that he stop it. Uh, And as far as I can tell, they made a pretty good case for all four of those points. Yeah, and so much much of that case was made, uh, as they repeatedly said, not by mind reading, uh, but by looking at the evidence put out into the world by Trump himself, his tweets, his statements, his comments throughout the day that laid out a chain of events um, and also preceding that, his words, his tweets, his comments, uh, all the way leading up to the end of the day on January 6th. I thought that the final message here from Democrats was actually asking the senators in that room perhaps particularly the Republicans who are obviously reticent to uh, punish or cross Donald Trump, to think about the consequences of doing nothing. Mm -hmm. What are the consequences uh, to the country, to the Constitution, to America standing in the world, uh, and laying out a case for the likelihood that this was not a fluke, that these things could happen again, And in some cases, arguing that it was likely to happen again. Trump has said he wants to run for president again. He has not actually denounced the lie that undergirds all of this. Uh, And his supporters who carried out this attack uh, have said that they are emboldened. So that's a pretty heavy message to leave Republicans with. The question is, are they listening? Were they listening? Not entirely clear. Right. I mean, they were listening, but did they actually hear it? Right. And first of all, there were, according to our colleague Manu Raju, you know, many of them weren't even in the chamber for a lot of this, but they know the arguments and they lived it. And they know this president and they know the the tightrope that they have had to walk for five years. And I'm talking about Republicans, of course. And so the question is, do they have their their ears open? Are, Are they open to very cogent arguments that we heard for two straight days, uh, bolstered by the president's own words, by his own tweets, uh, by the all of the public evidence that uh, has been on our TV screens over and over again. And I thought that the end, after uh, 
Congressman Nagus went through and asked questions like, was it was the violence foreseeable? Did the president encourage violence? Um, did he have a dereliction of duty in not stopping it uh, when it started, which was obvious that he need, only he and only he could do. But then winding up with Jamie Raskin, the, the head manager, talking about common sense and, uh, you know, trying to puncture the Republican argument that we've heard over and over again and probably will after they have their votes, that this is unconstitutional, that they didn't really prove that he actually incited it. We didn't we don't know. We don't have witnesses, so on and so forth. He's saying, you know what? We, we all know what happened. Use your common sense about what happened. And more importantly, like you said, Abby, about not punishing, punishing him and what that will mean for the future. Is there any other jury or jury-like body in the world where we have so little expectation that people will actually vote according to what the evidence suggests as opposed to political considerations that they have? And I recognize that there are some people... Uh, some Republicans in that room uh, that are going to do what they think is right. I think Mitt Romney is a good example of it, uh, of that. But there are, I mean, I think if it were secret ballot, let me put it that way. If, it's, it, were, if it were secret ballot, would there be a different count? I mean, you, you cover these people. Yeah, no, that's a good question. And I, you probably both have been asked that question a lot. I have, too. What about a secret ballot? Can't This is, um, you know, a trial that they put on and they, they decide the rules of. Maybe they can just make it anonymous and that could change the outcome. Like an actual jury. Like an actual jury. And the answer, of course, is that it isn't an actual jury. It right. isn't anything like we see anywhere else in the country. It is unique. It is a political exercise, uh, which has its own rules, again, that they that they create. And they all realize that part of being an elected official means you have to be accountable to the people who elect you. And, um, you know, this is a pretty big thing to be accountable for. Having said that, um, you know, it, it, it does defy logic that, again, people, these people who sat through this testimony, sat through uh, the arguments for two straight days, but much more importantly, lived through it, can say, you know what, I'm going to you know, hang my hat on the constitutionality argument. I'm going to hang my hat on whatever other legal uh, or political excuse is out there for me to do. And one other thing, Abby, that I don't think we've talked a lot about, but it certainly was relevant during the two-month period leading up to January 6th, which was how individual election officials and judges and governors and secretaries of state, how they were going to act, knowing that if they did anything to cross Donald Trump, A, their careers might be in jeopardy, and B, their lives might be in jeopardy. And this is something yeah. we haven't really talked about but it has to be on the mind of every juror, especially the Republican ones for whom President Trump really has a particular animus when it comes to feeling betrayed, that if they vote to convict Donald Trump, they might have to essentially go into hiding because a lot of these incited supporters of the president might wish them harm. And watch out for that argument coming from the president's lawyers tomorrow, perhaps the day after, they signaled, the president's lawyer signaled a couple days ago, that uh, that one of the cases that they're going to make against conviction and against these impeachment proceedings is that this would inflame anger and division, effectively saying, you're going to rile up the mob again. 
if you do this. It, it's it, in a lot of ways a veiled threat to everyone in that room, but it's particularly uh, focused on the Republicans who are in the position to change the course of how this goes. And I think they are cognizant of that. You've heard many Republicans like Marco Rubio and others making that argument themselves, that they are worried about the consequences not of allowing this behavior to go unchecked, but of the consequences of uh, saying to uh, the pre- President Trump's followers, this is not acceptable. That's the reality of the situation. They're mm-hmm. not, you know, there have been many Republican officials who have exhibited a lot of courage and bravery over the last several months and said, you know what, the country is is worth more than just my own ability to be reelected. Very few of those people are in the Congress right now. Yeah. And that's just a fact. They are worried about being reelected. They don't want to have a tough fight. They don't want to fight at all. They just want to cruise back in to another six years. And they will if they stick to uh, the, the, you know, the party line with sta- standing by Donald Trump. That, that's it's a very interesting and troubling argument that we've heard a number of times. Uh, basically, the appease the terrorists argument, which in foreign policy uh, is something that conservatives and Trump supporters laugh at. What, Never what do you mind mean? foreign policy, but in America, the American justice system. But right? but the idea of like don't go after uh, Qasem Soleimani in Iran right. because if you do that, then all of a sudden there'll be all these retaliations. And the argument is, you do what you need to do. You don't do what you're afraid the terrorists are going to punish us no for. Uh, and Anderson, uh, it's interesting that we're now hearing that, except the threat is from American terrorists. I thought it was also very interesting, uh, Jamie Raskin, and we'll talk about this with our our legal team right now, Ross. I mean, to hear Jamie Raskin at the end positing questions, questions that they would have asked President Trump, former President Trump, if he had agreed to come and and answer them, essentially daring the or getting the former Trump's uh, former president's attorneys to answer those questions. Well, I, I, I think what he's doing is saying that, you know, they've laid out the case, they've done it methodically, they've done it completely. And based on what's there, they're saying the Senate has enough to convict. And if the president has anything else, if he has evidence to undermine anything that the managers said or introduced, well, now's the time to bring it. And I, and he's, he's sort of leaving that out there for the Republican senators so that they notice and, and so that the managers will come back to that if the Trump lawyers don't do that, uh, that, uh, that, that, the, that the Trump lawyers didn't and probably won't come back with evidence on that. Well, on that one stuff. of the things also that we were talking about before we came on camera, which I think is really important to emphasize, is how uh, the argument of jurisdictional issues are over. Yeah, Anderson, this is, this is something that we've been talking about for days now and we saw coming that because, you know, we, we talked uh, a lot about that Belknap case from the 1800s where jurisdiction was decided, but then a whole bunch of the senators who voted no on jurisdiction then went and voted not guilty. That was something that the managers have to deal with is this notion that because some of the, the Republican senators, uh, because almost all the Republican senators found no jurisdiction, when time comes to reach a verdict, they're going to vote not guilty because of that. 
Representative Raskin. Which gives them basically a fig leaf. They don't have to sure. then acknowledge yeah, they, or deal with the they, actual They don't crime. have to deal with the facts. And Re- Representative Raskin is saying, no, 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 you can't do that. Jurisdiction was decided. It was decided by the entire Senate. The Senate has jurisdiction. The next question you're going to be asked is, was Donald Trump guilty or not guilty on the merits? That's the decision that you need to make. You can't avoid that. The jurisdictional issue is over. And and it's an argument that he has to make. I don't know how successful it's going to be, um, but it's an important argument. Well, it, it was important from a political point of view to put it before the country, to say the Senate voted on this. Yeah. And he said um, that, that let's not get caught up in a lot of outlandish lawyers' theories here. That's been decided. And so what he was saying to the Senate is, you can't hide behind that anymore. You can't say, well... I'm not going to decide Donald Trump's uh, guilt or innocence here. I'm not going to vote to convict because I don't think we should be here in the first place, which is what you hear from a lot of senators on the Republican side. And he's saying to them, that's not a question before you right now. That's over. Now you have to vote yay or nay. And I think it gets more difficult It doesn't stop them, them, though, from using that excuse if they choose to. No, but I think he puts it out there, not for them, but for everybody watching to say, Okay, they have to decide whether, in fact, Donald Trump willfully, um, you know, inspired the violence at the at the Capitol. Laura, some of the questions that that Jamie Raskin was saying that they wanted to ask the president. Why did why, Mr. President, did you wait two hours to say stop or any form of stop? Why did you do nothing to send help for at least two hours? Why didn't you condemn the violent insurrectionists that day? Uh, and if a president cited a violent insurrection against our government, would that be a high crime? And none of those questions are meant to be rhetorical, but they're meant to linger. They're meant for the defense team to actually address these things. They know they've planted some seeds, and it's up to the defense team to actually address them, or they will become trees, full-fledged trees, and possibly actually be enough to persuade some to say, look— all of the different exit hatches have been closed off by this, the impeachment manager's eloquence and their methodical approach to this particular case. They, please give me a reason that I can say acquittal. They're going to be begging with their eyes and attention span, hopefully, for that moment. But those seeds have now been planted, Anderson, as is this overarching theme of, look, they're likely going to argue that the Democrats are trying to scapegoat Trump. They want a reason to punish somebody for the tragedy of an insurrection, but he's not the guy. But then they plant the seed of, well, you were a sacrificial lamb here. He was sending you out, essentially, to be slaughtered, for lack of a better term, either politically or actually, by these insurrectionists. There have these, these seeds that have all been planted in their minds, and the defense is going to have to do a much stronger job tomorrow of trying to chop down those trees that are growing than they did on that very first day. And as you said, the idea of saying, hey, that's off the table now, the idea of the jurisdiction, they don't have a judge in a criminal courtroom to keep them focused and say, you cannot talk about these things. They're going to try to go down that road of distraction. But those senators know that if they voted already in favor of this being constitutional to go forward, to have jurisdictional issues, and they also know that they're now on trial as well. And their choices they make are as much about the future of democracy as what President then President Trump did. And, and, and Jamie Raskin was explicit about it. When he addressed the jury, he said, Senators, America, 
So as the trial has gone on, they have built out the idea that it's not just Donald Trump who's on trial, given the strength of the evidence, the power of the pattern. Nagus was masterful in marshalling all the points that filled the gap we were talking about in the last panel. Was Donald Trump acting knowingly? And now they're turning to America to put these senators on the spot if they don't do the right thing. Yeah, and Wolf, one of the things he ended with was uh, the part of it was what Gloria quoted, which is about sort of don't get caught up in, in lawyer ease. Use your, your common sense. Yeah, they made a very, very, very compelling case. You know, John, uh, we might say if we were watching basketball, almost a slam dunk uh, kind of case uh, that uh, Trump incited an insurrection, in their words, against the nation. He swore an oath to protect and must be convicted. And then they said not only convicted, but then disqualified from ever holding federal office again. Just a damning, detailed, compelling, overwhelming case presented over a couple of days, uh, largely on the basis of the president of the United States, the former president of the United States, in his own words and his own tweets, and the words of the thugs and the rioters, the insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol uh, a little more than a month ago. Uh, The president's lawyers get their chance tomorrow. Uh, They can try to swing the pendulum back. Uh, You would have to have your ears blocked, or you just have to be decided you're just not going to listen uh, to not, based on everything we've seen, just take the last two days, never mind the constitutional question, the last two days of the d- prosecution case to come away with the idea uh, they built the predicate that the president used this language for a long time. The president was in touch. The president should have had full knowledge. He would have to have his head in the sand to not have full knowledge that his words motivated his people. He invited them here. That is not in dispute. The president set the date for this rally, repeatedly reminded his supporters and urged them to come. We saw the president at the rally, and I think the powerful point they kept trying to make was, and then the president, who swore an oath to the Constitution, watched and did not say stop, did not say go away, did not criticize them, called them actually patriots and said, I love you, our journey will continue. So a very compelling case put together, great teamwork. Uh, if you're just watching, as someone who covered courts years ago, great teamwork by the prosecution. Sometimes things can get lost when you hand things off. Uh, the manager's presented an overwhelming case. And those Republican senators now have to hope that the president's lawyers can come in and chip away on the facts, not on the process, but on the facts. Because if they can't chip away on the facts, and it's going to be hard. We saw the president, former president, in his own words. We heard the thugs in their own words saying, he sent us here. We are fighting for him. Uh, so, but let's, we owe them the open mind of seeing what they can do in their presentation tomorrow. But if they can't chip away at the facts, then I think Gloria made this point. This is choosing time for these Republican senators Uh, They understand crossing Donald Trump complicates their politics. So what's more important to them, their power or the principle, their career or their country? Uh, That is the choice they may have to make as early as Saturday if this continues on the pace it's on. Because uh, the insurrection is a very compelling moment uh, is when the uh, House impeachment uh, managers, they really use the video to show that these uh, insurrectionists thought they were simply obeying marching orders from the commander in chief, that that's what they that they thought that's what the president at that time wanted them to do. And they wouldn't be punished for that. More than 200 now have been criminally charged. But, and so a good lawyer and you see this happening, a, a good lawyer will say. And, and you saw when one of the president's lawyers left the proceedings, say to give you on Fox News and he teed this up. They are going to make the case. Well, he didn't call the Proud Boys. They saw something on Twitter, and that's how they translated. He didn't call 
the woman who said Trump sent me. She saw something on Twitter, and that's how she translated. You can't blame the president for that. That's why the managers took so much time to go through the last four years. Yeah, that video to say, was very... To say that the president, there, there's plenty of evidence over four years. The president has to know when he says these things, people act on them. So just to chip away at that direct argument. Our special correspondent, Jamie Gangel, is uh, working her sources. What are you hearing, Jamie? Well, to uh, John King's point about having ears blocked, I've spoken to a number of Republican sources today. One is a former Trump administration official who said, all I can say is what I say every day. If this isn't an impeachable offense, what is? And then the source went on to say, if these managers can't convince you, you are not listening or you don't want to listen. So uh, that speaks to what John was saying about you know, will they have their ears open? The the other thing, and, and John touched on this as well, is about the future of the Republican Party. And I spoke to a senior congressional Republican who said to me that this trial is going to tell you uh, the future of the Republican Party, at least for the next couple of years. Is this the party of Trump? Or are these Republicans willing to break and move forward? They know that donors are leaving the party. They know voters are leaving the party. They know that members are leaving the party. But to the point we've been discussing, uh, these senators want to stay in power. They want to get reelected. I think an interesting question will be, Wolf, what about those who've decided to retire? What about those who may have four years or six years down the road? Will any of them be listening? Wolf? We'll find out in the next uh, couple of days. All right, Jamie, thank you. Jake, back to you. Thanks, Wolf. Now that the House impeachment managers have concluded their opening arguments, the Trump legal team will begin with their defense of the former president tomorrow. And our correspondents are getting some new details about the Trump team's plans right now and the reaction to the case presented by the House impeachment managers. Caitlin Collins is at the White House for us. Pamela Brown is here in Washington. Jim Acosto is near Mar-a-Lago, where President Trump, I believe, was golfing earlier today. Uh, Caitlin, let's start with you. What are you hearing about the case uh, that the Trump defense team plans to make tomorrow? Well, expect it to be a lot shorter than what you saw from Democrats, who took a lot of their time. You saw today they finished up earlier than what we saw in the last impeachment trial, but they did not take uh, or they took up a good significant portion of their time, breaking it up from yesterday and today. We are not likely to see that from former President Trump's team, and I'm told that they expect to finish their arguments by tomorrow. There had been some questions about that because, of course, one of his attorneys had actually requested a delay of the trial so he could observe the Sabbath. He said now that he is not going to need to have that delay, but he'll just not participate in the proceedings at that time. But I'm told that they expect to make their arguments and finish them up by tomorrow. That would then punt us and move us on to the question uh, session of this with the senators. But of course, the question is, what are they going to say when they actually get on the floor? Because they're following what we've seen from these impeachment managers, this methodically, carefully laid out timeline and reconstruction of what the president said and what actually happened. And what we're seeing from the attorneys and talking to them on Capitol Hill today is that they're going to say that there is no direct link between what the president was saying and what those rioters and insurrectionists actually did. Whether or not that's a successful argument that they can make, given what you just saw laid out by House impeachment managers and 
The people that we've seen who have actually been indicted say that they did what they did because of President Trump's comments. It could be a tough argument for them to make, Jake, but that's what we're expecting as of this moment. All right, Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Pamela, you're hearing uh, that the president's lawyers might not take the entire time that they have allotted. That's right. I mean, it could be as short as three to four hours. So uh, much less than the time that they're allotted. And what they've been doing is they've been pulling together more videos, looking for videos specifically of high profile Democrats like Chuck Schumer. They're planning to use a video of Chuck Schumer out in front of the Supreme Court when he said the conservative justices would pay the price um, when it came to an abortion case or trying to make the case. They will try to make the case rather as of now that there is hypocrisy with the Democrats. Now, it's worth noting that of course, nothing happened after Chuck Schumer said that, unlike with Trump, when he was talking about go fight and so forth, and you saw the riots on January 6th. But as Caitlin pointed out, uh, Trump's lawyers will, will try to argue that he never intended for those rioters to go inside and take over the Capitol, Jake. Mm-hmm. All right, Pamela Brown, thank you so much. Jim, uh, you're in Florida with the former president. Yeah. What are you hearing? Yeah, Jake, uh, you're right. Uh, He was out playing golf earlier today at his golf course in West Palm Beach. Uh, But in the meantime, he has been wanting to see more lawyers uh, who are supportive of his cause out on television, told by a source familiar with uh, former president's thinking uh, that he wants to see more legal voices out there defending former President Trump. Uh, And in addition to that, Jake, I can tell you, I talked with uh, one of the president's attorneys uh, for his impeachment uh, case, uh, Bruce Castor. I asked Bruce Castor uh, what is going to take place tomorrow. Uh, He didn't offer a whole lot of details, but he did say that they are streamlining the presentation that they're planning to make uh, in order to keep things short. And in the words of Bruce Castor, quote, we are cutting to shorten the case. Uh, so that uh, gives you some indication as uh, as to where they are right now in terms of the strategy. It seems like they're thinking less is more at this point. Uh, and I asked Bruce Castor whether or not uh, they are still confident, they remain confident uh, that uh, the president will be acquitted in all of this, that there won't be enough Republican senators to join with the Democrats to convict the former president. Uh, and Castor replied, quote, very. And so uh, while, yes, uh, th- this was a devastating case put on by the Democrats, the video was highly charged, highly emotional, uh, and I think even, uh, you know, sparked uh, some emotion on the side of uh, pro-Trump lawyers, pro-Trump advisors that we're speaking with. Uh, the, the Trump impeachment team believes at this point there, there's really just no way that the president is going to be convicted at this point, just looking at the raw numbers in terms of where Republicans uh, look like they're going to end up in all of this, Jake. All right, Jim Acosta in Florida, uh, along with Caitlin Collins and Pamela Brown. Thank you so much. Uh, and and uh, we should talk about the fact uh, that they seem so confident, the Trump team, Uh, It's because they already have 44 Republican senators who voted to say that they don't think this trial is constitutional. Mm -hmm. Uh, The idea that you're going to have 17 Republicans total vote to say uh, that he should be convicted, even though so many of them already said they don't even think this trial should happen, uh, doesn't make much sense. Right. Which is why the fact that we are going to see such an imbalance of firepower between what we've seen over the past two days and what we're going to see tomorrow is uh, probably not going to be of that much of a consequence because they are speaking to a jury that uh, has almost all made up their minds. I'm not here to say that things couldn't change drastically if something happened, Uh, but it's unlikely that is going to happen. And by the way, 
that is in part why I am told by people close to the president they are trying to keep him, not that he has much of an avenue uh, outside because he doesn't have Twitter, but trying to keep him on the golf course, trying to keep him occupied. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's certainly working the phones, talking to his friends. But the hope is he just tries to they get him to keep as quiet as possible to get through a case which his allies say over and over again in private, and I think maybe they said in public, they don't think that there's a chance that he can lose. I mean, maybe the best thing that could have happened to Trump's aides is that he's not on Twitter anymore. Because you can imagine what he would be saying throughout this hearing. No question. I mean, his lawyers, the strategy on on the Trump side is likely going to be to kind of phone it in. Uh, they don't really need to say anything. They want to probably do no harm to where they already are, which is that uh, they think that a majority of Republicans, a vast majority of Republicans in that chamber are going to vote to acquit. Uh, and it, it's not going to be I don't think we should expect our socks to be blown off tomorrow uh, by the case that they're going to make. I mean, think about the fact that the constitutional case was supposed to be the stronger of the two cases in the first place. And it was so incredibly weak uh, that even Republican senators came out of that session saying uh, that was terrible. How could you possibly listen to that and believe that this was unconstitutional? So I think this next segment, which is going to actually be on the substance, is where they have even less of a leg to stand on. It's not going to be anything spectacular, but it just goes to show uh, they don't think that this process uh, is is actually about the the senators taking in the information and processing it and making a decision. That's a real shame, but that's how they're viewing it from the Trump side. I would be surprised if we didn't hear from the Trump lawyers the argument that when it came to the last impeachment, Democrats said you have to have witnesses. Yeah. You got to have witnesses or else it's a sham. There's all this language. We ran it a few days ago mm -hmm. from Her from now Vice President Harris, from Chuck Schumer, et cetera. Now, the argument, of course, is that the last impeachment was about something that went on behind closed doors and you needed witnesses, whereas all of this took place in front of all of us. We all saw it happen uh, basically in real time. But I would be surprised if uh, if Trump team didn't bring that up. But to be fair, I mean, when you look back at the presentation that we saw over the last few days, they presented Ben Sass, other members of Congress who had pertinent information, who, if they were called to testify, would have been asked about those very same things. It's just out there in the public sphere. And that's one of the things that it, I think Democrats are going to look it, at. It, I mean, it, it wouldn't have hurt if they could have gotten witnesses. I mean, they did ask for one witness. Uh, Donald Trump, the defendant. And he turned it down. And he turned it down. And which was interesting that Jamie Raskin at the very end posed the questions that he would have asked him. Uh, but look, this is uh, th this is something that the Trump defense team is going to try to avoid when it comes to a lot of the substance. We're going to see a lot of whataboutism. We're going to see a lot of videos of Democrats, you know, at rallies being fiery. And the question is going to be, will that matter? And will they actually be able to, with a straight face, suggest that what those Democrats were doing is even close to akin to what we saw the president do? at that rally, and then most importantly, did not do when the riot started. Yeah, no, certainly Democrats have said stupid yeah. things at rallies, violent sounding things, threatening things. But have they launched a campaign that was eight months long to try to discredit an election that culminated uh, in violence that a lot of people feared? I don't think that has happened, uh, but uh, we'll see what they present tomorrow uh, when the Trump lawyers get their say. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. 
And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.